Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors writing in all different genres. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with Alan Shipton, the author of The Art of Jazz, A Visual History, published by Charles Bridge, the sponsor of today's podcast. Alan, would you start us off with a brief excerpt, please? Yes, I will. So this is about the women in early jazz. Now, best known are the vocalists, but several of the unsung heroines of the music were instrumentalists who are only now, in the 21st century, beginning to be properly recognised for their contributions. These include the pianists, Lil Hardin Armstrong and Lovey Austin, both of whom recorded in Chicago in the mid-20s, and pianist and arranger Mary Lou Williams, who cut her first records with Andy Kirk's Clouds of Joy in Kansas City in November 1929. Now, before 1920, the tenor saxophonist Isabel Spiller began playing in the musical Spillers, a band she co-led with her husband, the bass saxophonist William Hezekiah Spiller, and which, in addition to a number of female saxophonists, she later employed the reed player Willie Lewis, who'd be famous in Europe, and a very young Rex Stewart, who joined the Ellington Orchestra. One of the musicians who encountered the Spillers on the African-American touring circuit was the dancer and singer Valeda Snow, then just beginning her career, who would, according to Willie the Lion Smith, the pianist in one of her reviews, step out of the line and stop the show playing her trumpet. She went on to become one of the first significant female jazz trumpeters, making a considerable reputation and numerous recordings in Europe. Yet in the iconography of jazz, it's not the female players but the female vocalists who stand out. There are early images of blues singers such as Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith from shortly after they toured with the Rabbit's Foot Minstrels, and Rainey, with her characteristic headband, is shown posing with members of her Georgia jazz band. Her portraits even adorned a United States postage stamp. But with greater popularity than Rainey and a contract with Columbia that lasted from February 1923 till November 33, producing 159 recordings, Bessie Smith was a different order of artist. Dubbed the Empress of the Blues, she was photographed during most stages of her career. And following a few early anonymous snapshots, the first important portraits of Smith were by the pioneering African-American photographer Edward Elcher, who by 1923 had moved from his original premises in Harlem to his progress studio in Midtown Manhattan at 220 West 46th Street, where he set about taking as many pictures as he could of the luminaries of jazz. So I hope that gives you a, a sense, Lenny, of, of the kind of uh, approach I'm taking to this. A little bit about recording, a little bit about the women, and then moving in on the artists. So let's take a step back and explain why you chose this section of the book to start our conversation about uh, the art of jazz. Well, I think, as I said in the excerpt, one of the important things is that the female contribution to early jazz has really only been explored properly in the last 20 or so years. It was kind of taken for granted or not even noticed in all the jazz books from the previous century. And I think it's very important that not only we're we now discovering a lot about the players and singers, but we're finding these incredible photographs and drawings and paintings of the people involved. And that really fascinated me. So I'm going to take a step back even further before we get to the meat of the book. You not only have written, uh, I've lost track of how many books about jazz and are a jazz critic, uh, but you're a musician as well. Uh, can you just talk briefly about what got you into jazz in the first place when you were younger? 
Well, you've got to go back to World War II. My father was with the RAF, but he was in the Pacific. And actually, when I was in the World War II Museum in New Orleans a couple of years ago, I actually saw a lot of the places he described in his memoirs where he had been following the American forces. When he came back from the Far East, he brought a pile of 78 records from Radio Hong Kong, who'd been chucking out some of their older discs. And he put them all in a trunk and shipped them back to Britain. And amazingly, these discs by Fat Swaller and Duke Ellington and Earl Hines, only I think one seventy-eight was broken in this enormous trunk of, of records. So as a little boy, I was listening to all this record collection and jazz kind of went in with the milk. And since then, I've loved the music. I've started playing a bit of piano. And then in my teens, I became a bass player and really I've never looked back. And... At what point did you become interested in art? Was it parallel with your interest in jazz or did it come later? I think my parents made a habit of taking me to, whenever we were on holiday somewhere, we always went to the local art gallery. But what really kicked it off was when I was a student. I was a, a student at Oxford University. And our college had a very unusual scheme in that somebody had endowed some money. And they spent this buying paintings by really serious artists with the idea that if you're a student, you could borrow one of these for your room for the year that you were in college or two or three years. So we had these amazing paintings by David Hockney, um, some of the other great artists of the time. And if you put your name down on a list, you could have that in your room for a year. Well, we discovered there was no catalogue for the collection. So a friend of mine, who later became the principal of Glasgow School of Art, so it obviously rubbed off on him as well, we wrote the catalogue for the, uh, the collection. And that's really what got me started. Are there any parallels that you would draw between the kind of jazz music that most appeals to you and the kind of art that most appeals to you? There's one fantastic example of that in the book, which is actually a drawing by Pablo Picasso, which he did for a piece of music called Ragtime by Stravinsky. And Picasso was commissioned to do the cover. And what is amazing about it is it's a single line. It shows two banjo players. It's reproduced in the book. And he starts just on the edge of one banjo. And you then see these two completely finished figures wearing hats and playing. one's playing a guitar, one's playing a banjo. And you realize that it's just one line. And I think that's like a jazz solo. It's like picking up a trumpet or a saxophone and just improvising the most amazing solo, but with a way of recognizing the piece that's being played and the melody and so on. So uh, I guess I will uh, illustrate my relative uh, lack of culture. So prior to reading this book, I was familiar with pieces of music inspired by art. When I was in uh, what we call elementary school here in the States, I remember seeing a, a film uh, with the music by Mazorski and pictures in an exhibition. Uh, but where did the idea for having a book of art inspired by music come from? Well, I'd have to say that that came from two very inspirational publishers in the UK, a guy called Will Steeds and Laura Ward, who'd already done a book called The Art of Blues, which I'd seen and thought was a really clever idea, because what it did was to look at record covers, and it looked at the way that poster design and some of the other ancillary bits of the business had responded to blues. But when I came to think about it, and they had a chat to me quite early on in the life of this book, Jazz is a much more interesting spectrum than blues because it's a much wider sphere of music and it has a hundred years history where it's not just about the United States, but it traveled, particularly after World War II, into the rest of the world. And we can see all kinds of really interesting parallels with the visual arts and jazz. 
I mean, some of the areas we explore is the very peculiar business of art in Nazi Germany during West, uh, World War II. We also look at the way in which both jazz and artists were kind of subversive in Eastern Europe during the communist bloc period. So there are quite a lot of parallels between the music that particularly outside the States was taken up with the sense of liberation and freedom. I mean, South Africa is a good example. So many South African musicians looked at African-American musicians and they saw people like the Fletcher Henderson band wearing smart suits and traveling around the country. And they thought we could do with that too. And so there's a section on how album art and art depicting South African musicians picked up on a lot of the themes in African-American art. It's a really fascinating conjunction. I remember talking to the trumpeter Hugh Masekela and he said, we all aspired to be like African-American musicians. And of course, he succeeded more than most by moving to the States and making many brilliant albums in America. And from the start of the idea of this book specifically until uh, publication, how long did it take? took quite a long time. Um, what we really needed to do was to find a publisher in the United States who wanted to work with us. And I couldn't be more delighted with Charles Bridge because they have just managed to completely get behind the project. Their editors have been more than usually sympathetic. They've pointed out a lot of things that they thought, why isn't this there? Why isn't that there? And in many cases, uh, as a result of that collaboration, they're there. But the from the final go-ahead to the book to publication has taken nearly two years. There was a massive amount of trying to find the right pictures. And of course, in a big illustrated book like this, and there are 350 illustrations in the book, I had my desire to have about 400. And uh, people kept turning to me and saying, no, Alan, you can't have that number of pictures. But I have to say, we've done very well in getting a huge number of the ones that I'd hoped to see into the book. And did the structure of the book, the organization, uh, change from when you first started working on it a couple of years ago, or has it been consistent throughout? I'm sitting talking to you in a house in France where I come to write, and I actually roughed out the whole structure of the book on a giant sheet of paper showing every page and what I thought was going to be on it exactly two years ago. And I'd have to say that with the exception of about 15 to 20 pages, most of that initial conception has found its way through to the finished book. Of course, there have been some changes in pictures. There have been new things we found out as the book was going on. I didn't know much about the photographer I mentioned, Edward Elcher, and his pictures of Bessie Smith were a revelation. So it's been great to make that kind of discovery as I'm going on. And... At the very beginning, I guess, maybe before you sat down with that big piece of paper, did you ever consider an approach that wasn't chronological? Yes, I did. Um, but I think that if you're trying to look at two genres that developed side by side, it's really difficult once you lose chronology from either of them. So it seemed more sensible to say, well, look, abstract expressionism came along towards the end of the 1930s. You couldn't really begin with something like Jackson Pollock and the abstract, abstract Expressionists, and then go back to an earlier form of art. I think it would have confused readers, and it certainly would have confused the author. So uh, I think being reasonably chronological was a sensible course to take as the two genres developed side by side. And a good example of that is the way that 
album design began. And we didn't have albums until the end of the 30s. And in those days, they were books of five or six 78 RPM records bound together. And the album was the cover that went on the outside of those records. How times have changed. But actually, again, if you'd taken that out of the chronological sequence, I think it might not have made so much sense. So again, uh, last person in the world who would declare myself an expert either on jazz or on art. But I have to say, uh, one of the pieces that struck me most uh, is on page 137. It's the album cover from Time Out by the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And uh, we have sort of the reverse challenge of the book in that we're now sort of conveying to our listeners uh, uh, orally um, what an image looks like. But this is one where, as your notes indicate, there is Native American imagery on there, and there's also something that you say refers to the unusual time signatures on the track of the album. Can you talk a little bit about that again to sort of give our listeners a sense of how the artists are, you know, doing more than simply, you know, some sort of, you know, literal or allegorical representation of something that's fairly straightforward? Yeah, I think this is a very good example of that. I'm glad you picked this one out, Lenny, because uh, what we see here is um, an album where in fact, there's, there's recently been a book out about this very album um, in a, a series on recorded jazz. And Dave Brubeck had quite a lot of trouble persuading Columbia that he wanted to do an album in which every piece didn't have a straightforward four beats to the bar time, sorry, four beats to the measure, you have to say in the States, um, time signature. So this uh, album has unusual time signatures. It has things in three, it has things in five, it has three things in seven beats to the bar. And so to make this really stand out, and it's facing a page of the much more conservative kind of album covers that Brubeck had up to this point, the wonderful artist S. Neil Fujita took the idea that Dave Brubeck had Native American heritage. He wound some of the images that you'll find in the paintings and art of Native North Americans and put this into something where, as you look at the images, you'll see they're uneven numbers. So there's a kind of thing at the top that might be a headdress. Goodness me, it's got five things sticking out of it. That could be take five. And as you look down through the images, you'll see things that could be waltzes. They might have seven images, so that's seven beats to the bar. It's an incredibly clever weaving together of Dave Rubeck's heritage, the unusual time of the album, and something which really stands out in its own right. And interestingly, on another page of the book, we see the same artist doing the same thing with Charles Mingus and his Mexican heritage. So it was something that Neil Fujita really believed in. I think as somebody who had Japanese ancestry, he had a very analytical view of how album art could be developed in a way that both looked at the artist's heritage and looked forward at the music on the albums. And do you have a piece or two of art in the book that are your favorites? I have a number. Many, many years ago, in fact, it was just before 9-11, I was in New York making a program for BBC Radio about the Harlem Renaissance. And we had an absolutely wonderful day at the Schomburg Centre in Harlem, looking at the art, looking at the manuscript collection there. And uh, Howard Dodson, who was the director at the time, took me around and introduced me basically to those incredible Aaron Douglas paintings that are still there in the foyer of that building. You can come in and see these enormous murals. And they are 
for me, one of the most fantastic statements of art in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s. They have the whole history of African-Americans bound up in those paintings. So there are two and a half of those images in the book. In other words, two full paintings and one detail. And those for me are tremendously significant. But the other artists that I really enjoyed discovering were some of the other people who did album covers, and then some of those who just sat in gigs and drew what was going on. And um, uh, Bob Thompson is one of those. He did some fantastic paintings of um, uh, particularly Vornette Coleman and that circle of, uh, of musicians. But we found some line drawings he'd done in the five spot in New York of Sonny Rollins playing in the 1950s and 60s. And you can tell it's that period because Sonny had a Mohican haircut at the time. And there's a picture of him on Williamsburg Bridge playing a photograph. And then a few pages later in the book, you see this fabulous drawing. You also have portraits, promotional pictures, photographs, concert posters. Is there a type, I, I mean, there's one that I would imagine might be harder, that is more challenging for the artist to sort of capture the spirit of the music? I mean, for me as a layperson, it would seem to me that a photograph would be harder than, say, you know, an album cover where, again, the artist can, you know, be it would seem to be easier to be more creative. I think what fascinated me was the way in which during the period that the book covers, the 100 Years of Jazz, album artists and designers worked together to try and solve those two problems. So in particular, we have the brilliant artist David Stone Martin working with Norman Grants on the Verve label and doing amazingly detailed line drawings of musicians that have become iconic images of jazz playing. And on the other hand, you have Reed Miles at Blue Note, who was a very creative designer, working with photographers, working with graphic artists, and indeed working with typography itself to try and reflect what's going on on the albums. And I think that that veers from the very austere typographical covers that you see for something like Us 3 uh, to the rather wonderful use of Harlem models and and the girls who were very much in the newspapers at the time, on Lou Donaldson's album. It's a complete spectrum with one designer looking at this incredible panoply of music and trying to find just the right cover to bring that music to the public as they look through the albums in a record store and think, oh, I'd like to take a better look at this. What was the hardest thing about putting this book together? And you mentioned sort of having to sort of edit down from you know, 400 images to about 350, but... Besides that, uh, I think there were some choices that I was sad to have to make. Um, there was one painter in particular, a British surrealist painter called Edward Burrow, who has some fantastic paintings done of Harlem street scenes in the 30s. And we just couldn't work out a deal with the rights holders to use those paintings. So that was very sad. Another feature that I had hoped to include but just couldn't in grounds of space was George Gross, the, the German artist, who in fact is best known in the States for doing those little graphics that sit in the column breaks of the New Yorker magazine. Some of his drawings are still there, but he came to New York in 1938. And his son, Marty Gross, is a great jazz guitarist. And it kind of would have been nice to have had something by George in there. But again, I couldn't quite justify that choice. So leaving those things out, particularly with musicians I've played with, like Marty, was quite heartbreaking, but it had to be done. And was there anything that as you researched and built upon your 
already considerable knowledge of, of both jazz and art that particularly surprised you? A lot of things. I mean, particularly as I was looking into the images of women which with, with which we began, I found this incredible artwork here in France depicting Josephine Baker. I mean, um, I'm just a few miles down the road from the chateau that she bought on the Dordogne. And th this is another thing I would love to have included. But in her medieval castle, Josephine Baker installed a state-of-the-art 1930s Art Nouveau bathroom. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it have been great to have a jazz bathroom in the, in the book? But sadly, that didn't quite make it. But that was something I discovered as I was researching her life story, which was just an amazing thing. And... Uh, at least in the States in the last maybe five, ten years, there, uh, to the extent to which people go into brick and mortar stores anymore, there's been a resurgence in people being interested in buying you know, vinyl records, which obviously would have the album covers, you know, going against the trend of people just you know, getting music digitally. What trends do you see happening in the art of jazz? Well, I finished the book with Kamasi Washington, and that's absolutely deliberate because I think that the group of West Coast musicians that he's involved in, which has links into hip hop, it has links into many other contemporary forms of music, are doing two very interesting things. One, they've invented a very coherent visual language. If you look at Kamasi's albums, the whole idea of the epic and its successor is that every aspect of the visual appearance of those is controlled by the artist. He's selected the artwork, he's worked with the designers, and in the same way as he's recorded and mixed the music, the visual appearance of that music, and indeed, having seen Kamasi's band on stage on both sides of the Atlantic, the visual appearance of that group on stage is a very carefully thought through artistic endeavor. And I love the fact that jazz is moving in a direction where its visual appearance, both live, though that's obviously difficult at the moment with the COVID pandemic, but live music and the way it's presented in recordings has dovetailed in a way that's never happened in the music before. Well, it's, uh, it's an amazing book. It's a real uh, visual treat. If you go through the history of jazz as well, which again, for someone who has limited knowledge before it was quite useful. Uh, thank you, Alan, for your time this morning. Uh, the book, again, is The Art of Jazz, A Visual History by Alan Shipton from Charles Bridge. Thanks for listening, and please join us again soon for another book test. <laughs>